the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Should churches be used for political speeches? And then, is it time to pull our kids from youth sports? You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Wednesday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Steve Koble. My name is Brian Fromm. So good to have you with us on a Wednesday afternoon. As you know from this week, Steve is sitting in all week. Uh, my normal co-host, Aubrey Sampson, is off this week doing hard work trying to finish up her next book this is the one steve that's going to the top of the bestseller list this is the one it's gonna it's gonna climb those charts but hopefully we're excited to hear all about it when it's done but we're grateful for steve to be sitting in this week uh as i've said before steve is a teaching pastor at renewal church of chicago so steve great to have you with us why don't you remind people renewal church of chicago remind us about your church and where people can find you yeah, I'm a stone's throw away, Brian, from uh, from the United Center, and we are uh, online at RenewalChurchChicago.com and on social media, all the Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebooks, uh, Renewal Church Chicago. There you go. So people can go check that out when they're at the United Center. Go hop over there, check them out online. All right, Steve. Uh, it, you and I have talked already on Monday, on Tuesday about the political world around us. How do we as Christians navigate all that's going on politically? And one thing that we try to do here on The Common Good is be equal opportunity critiquers of the the right, the left, Trump, Biden, big support, you know, all of this. We'll talk uh, about we because we, we most are concerned about the church. How is the church going to navigate? How are we as Christians going to have a proper perspective? And so... This got my attention just the other day. I think it was eh, it was Monday or Tuesday. President Biden gave a speech. There was a, it got a lot of um, uh, notice because there were some protesters there, but also very raucous of people chanting four more years. It was a typical political speech, depending on what you think about Kim. It's probably how you saw it. But I want to talk about where that speech happened. That speech happened at a very famous church in South Carolina. I believe it was in Charleston, but it was at least in South Carolina. And uh, so you had kind of the pulpit and the church as the backdrop. And we see this when political season comes around. But here's what I'd love to get your thoughts on. I think it is just a problem when we allow politicians to give speeches in churches. Like when we kind of it's another melding, like what we talked about yesterday with or two days ago with that President Trump video. Uh, It's another melding of the church and politics. It's dangerous. I know it goes back in history where people give speeches in churches and rallies and this and that. So but I would love to get your thoughts on that because it feels like another danger. It feels like something that should be avoided by the church. 
Yeah, you, you know, the African-American church has a history of uh, different pastors actually running for office. So even James mm-hmm. Meeks ran uh, to become a senator. Um, and I think the history behind some of that is wanting to advocate for the the least of these and, and mm-hmm. maybe even feeling like uh, representation wasn't um, the, the government wasn't paying attention to certain groups of people. Um, and so I haven't figured out how to like what the perfect method for this is, yeah, but at the yeah. same time, to your point, um, there seems to be a, a, a space where we so easily uh, make politics into a religion and interconnect it, intertwine it to Christian faith. And yeah. like we talked about, it becomes syncretistic. It becomes a, a mashup faith that is no longer uh, that is no longer just Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we see it with the Iowa caucuses going on later. What is it next week or something where you'll see people um, given speeches in churches and you'll see they're rallying the I'm using air quotes, the evangelicals, right? Like we're all lumped into this thing. We saw it in 2000, the last election, President Trump being brought up at some mega churches and prayed for and kind of this. And we've seen Biden. He's he's constantly given in. I guess I feel just a little differently when you bring up uh, when pastors run like, yeah, that's your church. And you're explaining, Uh, why am I running? What am I doing? So like you said, Pastor James Meeks or whoever else, that feels a little different. The rest of it feels like pandering. And it feels like we're trying to use the church and use church language to get ourselves elected and to get you behind I, I'm always confused, too, because I know as pastors, we're not supposed to, for tax purposes, be able to tell people vote for this person <laughs> or vote for that person. But I, 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 you introduced us the other day to that word syncretistic. And I think it's so important because, man, Steve, I think it's getting worse. Like, I think mm. it's and maybe I'm just a prisoner of the moment. Maybe it was worse years ago. But uh, the church feels like on both sides of the aisle, like it's being co-opted for political purposes And I think something we've learned throughout history is when the church is co-opted for political purposes, it's the church that suffers. It's going to be the church that suffers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, when, I mean, if you do world, world history and you look at, uh, you know, I I don't want this for us to think that this will happen, but Germany, um, you, you look at, um, you know, even Dietrich Bonhoeffer's generation, uh, where, you know, he's trying to be, uh, independent of this intertwined government and uh, Christian thing. And eventually the government is the thing that becomes more prominent. And a lot of people would say, too, that uh, evan- evangelism and the, the, the spreading of the gospel and church planting is even affected uh, when the government is more intertwined in, um, uh, into uh the political sphere when the church is more intertwined in the political sphere. Yeah. Yeah. You bring up Bonhoeffer, I think it's an interesting one because he's, he has a lot to teach us because he was politically active, especially, you know, go read all of his stuff about Hitler and all of that. Um, But yet there, there was a desire to see the church be separate. The church needs to be separate. The church needs to, 
be living for a different kingdom. The church needs to be having a prophetic message to the culture rather than a let's cozy up to those in power. So maybe we'll get our way. It's just, ah, man, I, I, I don't mean to beat a dead horse here because we, we, we talked about it Tuesday. We talked about it Monday, but I almost think this is going to be the major thing we have to talk about from now till November. Like this feels like yeah. it. And, uh, and I don't, I don't see it going in a great direction. So, uh, equal opportunity. Yesterday, we pointed out the issues with Donald Trump's video today with, uh, President Biden's speech at that church in South Carolina. Coming up next, Russell Moore had, uh, some a bit of scathing, some good stuff to say over at Christianity Today entitled Evangelicals Shouldn't Criticize Evangelicalism Unless the Evangel Really Matters. What's he talking about? We're going to discuss that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. So good to have you with us today on a Wednesday afternoon. You know what, Steve, something we forgot to talk about yesterday uh, is the national championship game that happened on Monday night. Did you check it out? Did you end up watching it or did you fall asleep like these, you know, kid goes down, you go down type of deal? You know what? I, when Michael Penix threw the interception with about four minutes uh, to go, I I turned it off. Uh, So it was hard. It was hard. I was a big, you know, I'm from Indiana. I root for. Uh, Indiana. I told you the other day that uh, Jim Harbaugh was the first autograph that I got uh, ever when uh, he was in Indianapolis as the Indianapolis Colts quarterback. And um, and so I, I wanted the Big Ten to win, but then at the same time, I wanted Michael Penix to do really well. And yeah. and he just um, Michigan was just too much. They were good, man. They were. That was impressive. And yeah. uh, they Penix left that game just looking beat up. I mean, he was. I think he. I think we're going to hear that he probably cracked a rib or something. But he yeah. looked physically in pain. And I, you know, you're like, okay, it definitely was a game where like the better team won. That was a beat down. And so, congratulations. So, I, like you said, we're in Big Ten country. So, uh, yeah. congratulations to uh, the Big Ten getting a win. And uh, I don't like Ohio State, so it was also fun on my timelines and stuff to see Ohio State people just squirming and hurting. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. Okay, Russell Moore over at Christianity Today, he wrote this, evangelicals shouldn't criticize evangelicalism. And then he wrote, unless the evangel really matters. And then he said, the gospel doesn't come with a gag order. It calls us to name and repent of idolatries and hypocrisies especially our own. So there's a lot here and I might read some more of it, but the point is this, Steve, and I I would love to get your thoughts on this. Russell Moore over Christianity Today is saying this, that we as Christians spend a lot of time critiquing uh, the culture around us, the world, the people who aren't Christians. And, And that's okay. Like that's part of what we are to do, I think. But he wants to call us to call out our own hypocrisies, right? Our own um, things that we're doing wrong. And, and it got me reading and thinking. I'm going, I agree with him, but at what point does that go too far? At what point is that disunity and we're just kind of pulling at every little thing? But, I, but you know, we do want to get at the hypocrisies and the idols and what we see wrong. So on a grand scale, 
What do you think about his call there that our first critique as Christians should be of what's going on in our own tribe, if you will? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it goes with the whole notion of Jesus talking about uh, the plank uh, in someone uh, in uh, yeah, that's a good point. someone else's eye when when you've got a plank in yours. Um, and so I, I think that that's fair on a surface level. And but at the same time, I think that we're always even if if we're not like legalistically uh, evaluating uh, outside culture, we're evaluating on the basis of how do I reach people too, mm. you know, or what is the, what is the context of, of the place that I've been, uh, placed to be missional and, and how are people responding? What is the, uh, what are people believing, um, et cetera. So I think that we do that in some ways naturally. Um, but I, I do get the sense in which, um, I can't expect if, if the object of me or the objective of me evaluating culture is always to say, look at what the people are doing. The, the obvious answer is, yeah, they don't have the spirit of God. They mm. like the, the to, to expect people without regeneration and without the spirit of God to act like Christians is, uh, is ridiculous and and probably um, speaks to like more of a legalistic heart in the first place. Mm. No, that's interesting. That's a well put. Uh, he goes on to say that a lot of Christians out there just say that we should just punch. Basically, he says punch left, punch uh, towards those who are not believers. But I think you're right. And here's the issue. It's the hypocrisy, <clears throat> the hypocrisies, the idols, the whatever else of the Christians that will uh, – we learned this the other day when we were reading something. I forget exactly what we are reading. But that's what turns off those who, like you said, aren't Christians when they look right. at Christians. But I guess it raises the question, how do we critique well? What does that look like? Because mm. I'm not sure the throwing of the rocks on social media or whatever else is helpful. Uh, that sort of – and we only see that more and more. And I think it causes people to go, I don't want to be a part of that. Why would I want to be – a part of that. So what does prophetic kind of critique of ourselves look like that's healthy? That's a hard question, but anything come to mind for you of how that's done in a healthy kind of um, way where people even from the outside go, hey, they're kind of getting their house in order rather than kind of a disunifying, just kind of slinging at one another. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great concept and idea and something that could be really, really powerful. Um, I think I don't necessarily know the answer to the question though, yeah. uh, other than to say, um, you know, even when, um, the, th I guess the first thing that comes to mind is I think 1995, the Southern Baptist convention, um, sort of publicly confessed their sins of, of slavery and centered around, um, those things. And I, I think that there's something about, that that is like okay there's there's some there's some honesty uh when it comes to history with these folks and, and accepting a responsibility uh, so maybe that that's a, a a place that we can take a a sliver of um of of history and remind ourselves mm -hmm. that 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 was helpful in some way but I, but i do think that um there's an 
and owning up to things that is in general helpful. Like we know that in our own lives, like owning up yeah. to our mess is is generally helpful for others to relate to us. Uh, and I guess it comes down to what's the end goal, right? Like sometimes sometimes the end goal of the, the, the Christian Twitter fights or whatever seems like it, the end goal is I'm right, you're wrong. Like I'm – and it becomes divisive. And I think if the end goal is we want the purity of the church, we want to yeah. see the church being all that it can be so that it can reach the world. We want the church to be as unified as possible. So we've got to do the hard work of kind of it's like my marriage, right? Like if my wife and I never talk about any of our issues, that doesn't mean we have a great marriage just because yeah. we're not. It means we have a we, we don't have a good marriage, right? But it's as you're working things out. But why are we working things out? Because we want to have the healthiest marriage possible. We want to be doing well. I think it's the same concept. It's the, hey, Steve, as a brother uh, in Christ, I'm going to point out to you, you know, maybe something I see in your life. And, I, and I'm welcoming you to do that to me as well. And hopefully it makes me a quote unquote better Christian and you a better Christian and therefore the church a healthier place. So Twitter is what makes this very dif- difficult. Twitter makes this, uh, this a difficult one, but I think Russell Moore has got good words to say here at Christianity today. I'd encourage you to go check it out. He says the gospel doesn't come with a gag order. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, he's one who critiques and has been critiqued. So uh, I think he speaks of what he knows. I'd encourage people to go check it out. Okay. Steve, something you and I talked about off air the other day, but Gospel Coalition wrote an article in which uh, they say youth sports, it might be time to pull our kids from youth sports. You've got kids on the total front end of this. I got kids on the back end of this. I've got thoughts on this. I'd love to know yours. We're going to talk youth sports next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Steve Koble. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today Uh, on a Wednesday afternoon. If you've missed any of our show, go get the podcast wherever it is. You get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. All right. Steve, would you share the story you shared with me the other day about your two-year-old playing soccer? The, the the reach of youth sports now, even at the youngest of ages. I love this story because I, I am right there with you. Yeah, we're we're so a friend of mine, uh a couple of guys at the church have a couple of two year old boys and um we're like we kinda wanted to hang out and wanted also them to do something active uh with other kids and so uh they signed uh up for toddler soccer league and so um and so we so we signed up and and it'll be eight weeks of running around hanging out with guys but um i think it'll be good for my son just to hang out with other kids and play yep uh so my kids grew up playing park district stuff and my wife and i had a thing when they were young we coached as many of them as we could right we knew that when they got older we wouldn't be able to coach uh, but right now we could coach them. And so we, you know, I was coaching 
third grade basketball and first grade soccer. And I was always my son's baseball coach. And my wife tended to coach our daughter stuff and I would help out. And then, but then they reach a point where it turns into travel sports, right? And that's what this article is going to get at because even in the five years since my kids have kind of gone through it, uh, travel sports have gotten younger and younger and younger. And so you and I have talked, you are a college baseball player. Uh, my son uh, is a baseball player. And basically when he hit age 11, maybe we had to make a choice of whether to put him in travel ball or really the, really the other choices or really stop playing competitive ball. Uh, because all the good players by that point had moved to travel ball. And I'll be honest, now that's age eight, age nine. Wow. Same is true for soccer. Same is true for basketball. Uh, all of it. All of it. So, like, probably when you were younger playing baseball, you were probably playing town leagues till, I don't know, till high school maybe? Or yeah, I mean, when you think of Little League World Series, the Little League World Series, you know, that was the big deal was – um, can you, you know, our thing was, can we beat Brownsburg and Lance Lynn and, uh, those guys. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so that was the focal point. Yeah. It, it's just very different now, but here's the struggle. And I'm just projecting what you're going to learn here in the next five <laughs> to 10 years. Uh, you want your kid to play sports that, that they want to play, right? Like we're not talking about the parent who's like, you will be, you know, the old, uh, you know, you're going to do this whether you like it or not. I'm talking like my kid loves baseball. Uh, and it's a struggle because it's also super expensive now uh, and super time consuming. Like my son is playing some pretty high end travel ball. That's weekend tournaments. That's uh, not in the obviously only during the baseball season. Uh, so it raises a lot of questions. It raises money questions. Uh, it raises uh, time questions. So in the, you know, the two or three months of baseball season, my son might miss half the Sundays of church in those two to three months. And I'm the pastor, right? But uh, the weird part is the other option is you just don't play baseball anymore. And therefore you can play high school ball, but when the high school season's over, you're just not going to play anymore. And this is the struggle facing many people in your pews, in my pews, uh, and as your kids get older. Like your kids got another five to eight years of just park yeah. district stuff, but it's getting younger and younger and younger where that's not available anymore to any kind of degree where they're getting better, where they're enjoying it. Um, so the question that a lot of churches, I think, are facing and Christian parents is what do we do? Because like I said, Church is being missed. Uh, money is being spent. Uh, but at the same time, some of my son's best friends have come through travel baseball. Some of our best times in the summer are traveling down to Indiana to outside of Indianapolis to play this tournament or traveling to here to play that tournament. So you're not in it yet, but I know you have an athletic bent. If somebody comes to you, Pastor, I need to talk to you about this. I don't know how to process this. My kid wants to play AAU basketball, but here's what it's going to require. Money-wise, time-wise, what do you suggest that we do? What are your thoughts? I don't even know how much you've even thought about youth sports because your kid's two years old right now. But <laughs> that's the world. Like it's 
By yeah. age eight, age nine, and you can fight it, fight it, fight it. It's just the world we live in of you sports. It's our money-making racket. It's all of this, but it's also fun. So how would you – how do you foresee yourself processing this down the road? And then I'll tell you how I've done it as someone on the other end. <laughs> Man, there's like a number of things that I'm like, I don't know if that's right or not, uh, you know, when, when I think about this. Um, but – you know, I have watched uh, my colleagues' kids are older than mine, and they're very uh, involved in sports. And so, you know, I know last, like this past Sunday, uh, mom had to leave church maybe 10 minutes early to, to head out to take a kid to a game. And, uh, and they got five kids. So this is like they're rolling through like a, he- a hectic schedule when it comes and they're playing different sports. And so I think for me, just because I, I know that even as a pastor, you might feel this way too, Brian, mm-hmm. that the, I learned a lot about playing on a team and being a part of a team and approaching leadership from, um, from team sports. And, um, and so that I, I think there were like serious, valuable lessons that were gained through playing sports. And some of my favorite memories um, when I was a uh, young teenager is playing travel baseball. Uh, now, I wasn't in church at the time. I wasn't mm-hmm. a follower of, of Jesus at the time. Um, but I do think that there's a way in which you can prioritize, um, you know, when I'm in town, when we're, it doesn't matter if we're tired, we're going to church. Yep. If, if, uh, if we can, and we're, we're, we got to get back from a trip, we're going to church. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're, all right, we're on our way driving somewhere, but we're tuned, we're tuned in to, um, to church service streamed online. And we're, we're Mm -hmm. active in some way, even if, if that's, small group or youth group, um, on, uh, during the midweek. Um, I just think about some of those things being, uh, being a a priority. Um, and I I feel like the kids that I know who are very active in sports are also very interested in their faith. So that's absolutely true. uh, What you've projected to how you're going to view this is basically what we've done. Mm -hmm. So, and I've had people call me out on and be like, hey, how, I don't understand it. And I, a couple different reasons. We're like this. We tell my son. So take my son with baseball. We tell him uh, when you do not have a game in the whole season, right, where there's no games, no practices, which is the majority of the year, you will be in church all the time. Like you're not going to sleep in. You know, And he wants to be at church. Like, I don't want to make this seem like he's fighting or this or that. But that we're going to also recognize that baseball is important to you. And those of us who grew up where nothing ever happened on Sundays, it just doesn't exist anymore. Sunday is just like Saturday culturally. So you could take the stand. And I respect this. That says not in our house and you're not yeah. going to play. But here's another thing I never wanted to have happen. I don't want my son to go grow up going, I love baseball, but church took baseball away from me. Yeah. That's a real like, – You better be willing to talk your kids through that. And so I want to instill a love of church in my children and a at the same time going, we're not going to be legalistic about this. Like Mm -hmm. if you have a game and it's out of town, we're going to go. We're going to go have fun. We're going to go hang out with your buddies. We're going to meet with the parents. We're going to hang out and do this. 
But next week when your tournament doesn't start till three o'clock and it's in Joliet, you're going to be in church and we're going to do this and that. But it is, man, it's, you're going to see it. And there's a weird pastor element to it. Cause here's what else is weird. You're going to want to be at all your kids games, <laughs> but you can't be like, Hey, I'm taking the summer off. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So uh, it's interesting. I do think this is a huge issue for churches going forward. It's big. This is it. Sunday is not set apart culturally anymore. Like when I was a kid, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in a town where there was nothing Sunday morning, even if you never went to church. Our elementary schools were doing stuff now on Sunday mornings as my kids were growing up, and we constantly had to make these choices. And I think it's only going to grow more and more. So uh, very interesting to see. Uh, we'll have you on again, Steve, in eight years to go, hey, <laughs> what's your kid plan? What's your kid plan? All right, coming up next, I saw just a wonderful quote about fatherhood that I want to read for Steve because he is early in the fatherhood journey. Uh, and I'm going to read it for him next here on the common good AM 1160 hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to the common good AM 1160 hope for your life alongside Steve Coble. My name is Brian Fromm. great to have you with us today. Uh, as we're still shoveling and pushing the slush around. I think that the, the thing, Steve, that signifies like, January, February in Chicago land is just slush. Like it's just that gray <laughs> slush. It's not like snow you play in. It's just like that slush gray sky. It's the worst. <laughs> that just sounds so terrible. But everyone can picture it, right? You know exactly yeah, yeah. what I'm talking about. Uh, it's just that slush. So, uh, yeah, uh, hopefully you're enjoying it out there, you know, so. <laughs> I'm a little jaded right now by the snow, <laughs> uh, but it is what it is. Much happier com uh, conversation here, Steve. Fatherhood. You and I are both fathers. Now, we're in different ends. I've got a 20-year-old, a 16-year-old, and a 14-year-old. So a sophomore in college, a sophomore in high school, and a freshman in high school. Uh, you have a two-year-old and an eight-month-old, uh, if my if memory serves me right. So you're on that complete front end of it uh i'm in teenage years but like i can see the the finish line of like mm -hmm. them being in my house like so mm -hmm. we're in a very different spots but i saw this on twitter and knowing that i was going to be talking with you i was like man uh like this is so true and i wish that i grasped this earlier so i'm going to give you a gift here a gift of uh of something about fatherhood i'd love to know if if this has even been something you have felt in the first two years of fatherhood, uh, this is from somebody called named Alex Jones. It's not the conspiracy theorist host Alex Jones. This is unfortunately for this guy. He's got the same name, but uh, this is just a guy named Alex Jones. He wrote this. Had a friend of mine tell me before I had kids, fatherhood will be the best theology lesson you'll ever have. Wow. How so? I asked. Well, You'll love these kids more than you could ever have imagined, not because of anything they did, just for who they are. You'll give anything for them. You would die for them without a second thought. You would spend any money you had just for one moment sitting with them. You'd forgive them anything, no matter how terrible. And then you'll realize God loves you like that, only infinitely more. I read that and I was like, I need to sit in that. I need like, because it's so true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's so true. So let me ask you on the very front end of fatherhood for as tiring as it can be, Steve, uh, 
When you look at your kids, what's it taught you about God? What's it, what it's, how has it grown your picture of your heavenly father? Brian, just you teeing up the conversation. I literally uh, opened up my photos on my phone just to scroll to look at some pictures of my sons. And mm. uh, like, that's the instantaneous thought that like, I haven't looked, I haven't seen them in a second. Let me go uh, look at them. And uh, I do think that to your point, like when my first son was born, um, I realized I'm so incredibly proud of him and I'm proud of him simply because he exists. Mm. Um, and that's like, um, he, he doesn't have to do anything for me to be proud of him. And, um, and then I started to think about the gospel and what I preach, uh, what we preach. And um, you look at Galatians chapter four and Romans chapter eight and different passages to talk about our adoption as, as sons, uh, uh, daughters of God. And um, you realize that the gospel of grace is this uh, undeserving. Uh, I love you because you're my child. And what happens when we become followers of Jesus is that we get united to Jesus and mm-hmm. what God, the father said over his son at Jesus's baptism this is my beloved child upon whom my favor rests. Um, that's what he says over you and me. And uh, even to your point of infinitely, if infinitely greater, um, I think that's just the reality of like, no, God's affection is for, is for me in that way. And sometimes I miss, I guess I, I think w- one of the things that you can do is like miss how God feels about you. Yeah. Um, and and oftentimes we relate how God feels about us on the basis of how well we're doing at um, following him or yes. how well we're doing at uh, being obedient to him. And I think the thing that that crystallizes or illustrates that is that, like, I don't stop feeling very uh, lovingly towards my son based on his obedience to me. I, I still. <laughs> I love him because he exists. Yes. Oh, that's so well put. Here's the deal. I've said it from our pulpit before uh, when talking to our people. Like if I, if I approached my kids that I looked at them every night and said, you know what? Uh, I asked you to do this and you didn't do it today. Uh, you guys were a little, you were a little ornery today. Uh, you didn't finish eating your vegetables. So I'm not going to love you today. Like I would be the worst father in the world. Like I would be, yeah. I would be the worst because my my love for my kids then would be completely conditional on how they, uh, how they act, how they perform, and yet that is so how many that is such how many of us view God. Like we treat God that way. Like He's up there with some kind of cosmic scorecard going. Well, Steve, you didn't do your devotions today. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Steve, you know what? You you kind of snapped at your wife today at one point. So uh, you do not earn my favor today. But yet we would never treat our own children. And I think I've always known that. But once I had kids and raised them and realized the depth that I love them because of what you said, I love my children not because of what they do for me. I love my children because they're my children. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will give anything for my children because they're my children. Uh, it doesn't mean that I don't have to discipline them or correct them, or we don't have issues at times, 
But ultimately, they know or they should know that I'm always in their corner. And uh, how much greater does our Heavenly Father? This is we talked the other day about identity, our identity as children of God. Like we, that's what we're called. We're adopted children of God. How perfectly does he love us as a father loves a child? And I'm sure you felt that the first time you held your first son, like just going, I didn't know I could love anything this much, right? Like, do you remember that moment when you first held your kid? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think the thing that I was shocked by was uh, how proud I was of him. Like yeah. the, my pride and like, I, I never really understood the statement um uh, they they are my pride and joy until um until it was until i held them in my arms yeah yeah it, it, it i for me having kids has really um it's just expanded how i view how i understand how god views me it's just it really it's made it real and like like i said i like I love my children so much that at times it hurts. Like you, you give a part of yourself to them that when they, I've told you, I told you my 20 year old, uh, she'll do great, but she's about to spend the next semester overseas. Uh, my, that is not going to be easy for me. Yeah. Like to have her over there. Why? It's not because I don't trust her. It's not because I'm a, it's because I love her so much that I just want her near me and I want to be able to protect her and do what dads do. Uh, but yet you gotta let him go a little bit, but that's how our heavenly father sees us. Like that depth of love that our heavenly father has for us as his children is beyond what we can describe. And, uh, yeah, I, I just hope people out there, you grasp that because we, we look at God often as a cosmic scorekeeper who's just kind of, you know, has his thumb on us. And it, it's just not good theology. It's just not right. And I thought this tweet was just wonderful. So you know, we hope that you all have a great night. Come join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6 p.m. For Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.